Welcome to your Relationship Lovecast by True Potential, the weekly web show and podcast that explores relationships and wellness, featuring in-depth interviews with acclaimed authors, wellness experts, health influencers, and spiritual leaders so that you can create a relationship and life you love. And now your host, Andrea Carella. We have already begun our amazing 14-day love challenge, and it's free. So if you haven't signed up already, be sure to visit truepotentialcounseling.com forward slash 14 hyphen day hyphen love hyphen challenge to join 10,000 plus couples around the globe. Now on with our show. Welcome to episode 19 on Relationship Lovecast. Today on our show, we will be covering how to overcome losing someone you love with the grief recovery method. Now, I remember several years ago when I was leading an intensive outpatient treatment program for chemical dependency at Banner Behavioral Health, they were offering a workshop called the Grief Recovery Method. I had spoken with one of my colleagues who had gone through the program after her son died and said it was the most powerful and helpful aspect of her healing process. I was so impressed with the program and the positive impact this approach has had on the lives of those who have lost loved ones that I had to have the executive director of the Grief Recovery Institute, Russell Friedman, on the show to give us more exposure to this powerful grief and loss strategy and to help provide useful resources to members in my audience. This topic is near and dear to me because one of my best friends lost her mother to cancer several years ago, and I have witnessed the pain and struggle she has endured since her mother died. Even clients that I work with who have lost their brother to war or sister to tragedy or even to substance abuse have been deeply impacted by this loss, whether it be emotionally, mentally, physically, or spiritually. Our guest today, Russell Friedman, is the Executive Director of the Grief Recovery Institute Educational Foundation and co-author of the Grief Recovery Handbook, When Children Grieve, Moving On, Moving Beyond Loss, and the Grief Recovery Handbook for Pet Loss. Russell has written extensively and has been featured and published throughout the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom. Along with founding partner John W. James, Russell has pioneered the formation of more than 2,500 grief recovery method outreach programs throughout the United States, Canada, England, Mexico, the United Kingdom, Sweden, and Australia. This eight-week program has helped more than 500,000 grieving people deal with the loss of those that they love. And Russell has appeared um, as the grief recovery expert on CNN, Anderson Cooper, The Today Show, and has helped citizens deal with tragedy and loss and helping parents guide their own children in dealing with the loss, with various losses of all kinds. Thank you, Russell, for being on today's show. My pleasure. Great to join you and your audience. Great. It's wonderful uh, to have you on today to share your, your knowledge and your wisdom with us. What inspired you to get into the work of grief and loss? A great question, and I, I like to borrow the answer my partner, John W. James, gives, because what he'll say is he didn't wake up one day 37 years ago and go, grief, what a concept, I think I'll make it my life's work. He was 
thrust into this by the death of a three-day-old baby son. Now, my story is different. It doesn't sound as tragic, but I got here 28 years ago on the heels of my second divorce and a bankruptcy for a half a million dollars. And between those things, I was literally, Andrea, brought to my knees. I couldn't function. I had no skills, knowledge, awareness, or capacity for dealing with the loss. And it was to me as if my life as I knew it were over and I didn't know what to do about it. I quite accidentally showed up at a one-day grief recovery event that John W. James was doing and on that day discovered that grief is not limited to death but includes divorce. It includes financial mayhem. It includes many, many other losses, 43 to be exact. I was dragged kicking and screaming into the arena of grief and recovery. And thankfully, I can tell you 28 years later that that particular Saturday when I met John and this then eventually became what I do in my life's work is probably one of the greatest days of my life. I am, And it is also why I'm here with you today and here with your audience to pass on to them the things that helped me change my life, turn it around and, and make me able to be able to say this. 28 years ago, I would have traded my existence with anyone on planet Earth. Today, I wouldn't trade with anybody. And that to <laughs> me is the happiest thing I can say. Yes. Oh, that's great. Wonderful. Well, I'm so glad to have you on the show to share this, this knowledge. I think it's very, very valuable. What happens in our heart, mind, and body, and even our soul when loved ones die? And how can we heal from it? Great question. Let's start with a kind of a def definition, although it's a little mechanical, it explains. Grief is the conflicting feelings caused by a change or an end in a familiar pattern of behavior. So whether it's a death or a divorce or any other major loss, our whole universe is upside down. And when that happens, the dominant part of our universe outside of the balance, because you mentioned heart and soul, body, mind, all of the package of balance, but the dominant part following a loss is the broken heart, the emotion. The emotional aspect dominates every other element. It is very hard to access your spiritual side when your heart is broken. It's very hard to access your intellectual or academic side when your heart is broken. Your physical body does not participate in the same way. For example, two of the classic responses to grief are you either can't eat or you can't stop eating and you can go from one extreme to another. You either can't sleep or can't get out of bed and you can go from one extreme to another. And that's part of the physical plant going, excuse me, something's wrong in my universe, but I can't directly access it with my physicality, my spirituality, or my intellect. So my job in grief recovery is always to move people about 14 inches from their head to their heart because that's where the real work is done. And that's hopefully what we will be talking about today. Mm. And how can somebody start that healing process? I, I'm thinking of one of my clients, actually, that, that lost her brother and uh, who died in, in, in war and just dealing with that, that experience of losing him when he was gone and then when he actually literally physically was gone, the impact. How might she move through the healing process effectively? 
Well, the first thing that has to happen is a recognition that in a crisis, and grief is a crisis by definition, and, and in either level, the level of him being gone away physically from contact, and then the level of him being dead, you know, permanently gone from contact, but that here's a piece of language. In a crisis, we go back to old behavior or old beliefs. All of us do this. It's a unit universal truth. It's not arguable or debatable. It's what we all do. When there's a crisis, we reach back into our bag of tools or bag of tricks or ideas, and we find what we know. And almost not without exception, what we find is our oldest, most firmly entrenched ideas. Even if we have been in therapy for decades or 12-step programs or spiritual programs, when there's a crisis, we may go back and leap over everything we have learned since and go back to very, very old ideas about dealing with grief. And our initial early ideas about dealing with grief are learned when we're two, three, four, five, six, seven years old in our family, whether we had a dog die or a grandparent die or someone in the family got divorced, either our immediate family or extended family. Any loss event is a learning ground. The tragedy is this, listen to this. Grief is a normal and natural reaction to loss, but almost everything we ever learn about dealing with grief, especially when we're young, is not normal, not natural, not healthy, and not helpful. So in this crisis of grief where we go back to what we know and what we know isn't correct or helpful, now we're trapped using tools that don't work. It's kind of like trying to paint with a hammer or a saw, uh, not having a... a or paint. And, and that's the sad metaphor for grievers in our society, most of whom are bright, loving, willing. But if you don't have the right tools and a safe environment, so for your friend whose brother died, the first order of business is to get better information in a safe environment. And with that, obviously, one of the things we would do is direct people to our articles and our books so that without any intervention or interference from an outsider, they can read a little bit and go, oh, my goodness, I was taught when I was little not to feel bad when bad things happen. And yet the death of my brother is bad. And I do feel bad. I do feel sad. And yet my earliest idea is that I'm not supposed to feel the way I feel. And what you have to understand, Andrew, is that the wrong idea puts us in conflict with our nature and our truth. It is natural to feel sad when something sad happens, as it is natural to feel happy when something happy happens. So the first order of business we all got as little kids was don't feel bad here have a cookie you'll feel better and so we get distracted by putting a substance on top of a feeling distracts us from the original feeling now the cookie doesn't actually make us feel better it makes us feel different but it sets us up for a lifetime of dealing with our feelings with substances we have a nation of massive overeaters we have a there are over 300,000 obesity related deaths in America every year. And it's all based on don't feel bad here, have a cookie. And look at the drug and alcohol pandemic, where later, instead of using f food to medicate our feelings, we'll use other substances. And it's just going on and on and snowballing. And you, having been in the field of recovery from substance stuff, you, you have seen that firsthand how people keep using substances as a false uh, practice in dealing with their feelings. Right, right. So Russell, I've heard a lot about stages of grief. Now, is that really something? Are there stages of grief? What does that look like? And 
Can you clarify if, it, if there are not? Okay, great question. Almost everybody in the sound of our voices has heard of Elizabeth Kubler-Ross, who wrote the famous book on death and dying. And that's the book in which she defined five stages that a dying person might go through after being told they had a terminal illness. Unfortunately, over time, it morphed so that the idea that there were stages of grief replaced or supplemented the stages of dying. There are many people who don't even agree on stages of dying, but that's not our field. Our field is grievers, people who are dealing with the death of someone meaningful to them or divorce or other losses. And our opinion, and we have written at great length about this, is that there are no stages of grief and never have been. And any is negative. It doesn't help grievers because it puts them in a position that doesn't allow them to access their personal truth about their relationship with the person who died or the person they're divorced or estranged from. So in our opinion, no stages. What there are are actions. Our, the Grief Recovery Handbook has a subtitle, which is the Action Program for Moving Beyond Death, Divorce, and Other Losses, including loss of health, loss of career, and loss of faith. And the real key is what actions do I need to take? So there are no stages. I think everybody just needs, and if you want, anyone wants to, they can go on our website and uh, www.griefrecoverymethod.com and find an article we wrote that debunks the idea of stages of grief. Then you and I don't have to use up time here. They can go read about it in detail, see our explanation. Now, there was a kind of an implication earlier, the idea of what people can do for themselves individually, and then what can we as friends do to help our friends who are grieving? And the really two different uh, distinct questions. One of them is what can I do for myself? Well, the first thing is you have to get better information. If you take what we were talking about earlier, that almost all of us get wrong ideas when we're young about dealing with grief. And then when there's a crisis, we go back to that wrong information. So the first order business is get correct current information. Then you have a battle. It's like, I can tell you what we believe to be a universal truth about dealing with grief, but it will be in conflict with what you learned in your family, your your universe, your church, your society. We're not here to attack anyone's family or your society, but if you don't have correct information, you cannot get to the conclusion, which is to help you discover and complete what was left to most emotionally unfinished for you and your relationship with anyone meaningful to you. Now, notice twice in this little time slot, the last few minutes, I've said death of someone meaningful to you or death of someone important to you. What I didn't say, Andrea, was death of a loved one. And there's an interesting little section in our book where it says uh, a less than loved one hopes and dreams. And when we wrote that in the book, our editor called up and said, what are you guys doing? You can't say and I said to her, I said, uh, Mary, um, imagine this, sadly, tragically, what if you as a young girl, your father or uncle or grandfather had sexually abused you for years and years? Uh, and let's say later that person dies, would that necessarily be death of a loved one? She said, oh, my gosh, I never thought of it that way. I said, well, we have to think of that way because we are always helping people who had a relationship with someone who maybe should have been a loved one but wasn't. So if we use the phrase loved one, we eliminate half the people we might help because they'll go, 
they can't relate to that. So now we always say death of someone meaningful to you or death of someone important to you. And think about divorce. In divorce, although we may have loved someone in the beginning and for some time, but eventually when it goes downhill, by the time a marriage has isn't viable anymore, the person who had been a loved one is no longer a loved one. So we just use the phrase someone important or meaningful to you in dealing with death, divorce, and other losses. Mm-hmm. Now, and, and how can somebody help somebody who's going through that process? Well, the good news and the bad news is you can't. Mm-hmm. Um, when it comes to grief, we don't believe in intervention. So we can't take a stick, you and I, and hit people on the head and make them do something because you and I believe it's good for them or right for them. Uh, they must be a willing participant or it doesn't work. And we've seen many times where people are dragged or forced to try to do our program and they won't do it because in order to do our program you of grief recovery, you must be honest. And if you're not honest, it has no meaning. You can only get complete with the truth. You can't get complete with a lie. Now, if if I have been helped by grief recovery, which I have, and I meet someone who's struggling with grief and they ask me, well, gee, Russell, you seem to have dealt well with grief. What did you do? Then I can give them an idea and guide them to some resources to help them start to look at what they can do to deal with their grief. But one of the hardest parts is to go up to someone that you can see is struggling and to offer them some unsolicited advice. It's really dangerous. So even when people call me say, my friend is struggling with grief. I want to give her a copy of your book. Can I do that? And I go, yes, but here's a way to do it. If they've read the book, it's easy. I say, I want you to take them the book and you say, you know, here's a book that I have found really helpful for myself. I thought you would get some benefit from it too. And that's a good way to give the book. Now, when people call me, if they haven't read our book and don't really have any grief recovery knowledge, then what I'll say is, Go to the bookstore or library, read the first 58 pages of the book, which is part one. Then you can give the book with that same sentence. Here's a book that I have found very helpful for me. I thought you might get benefit also. Please notice the difference. Otherwise, you go up to them and say, here's a book for you. And it implies that there's something wrong with them, that they need therapy. Although grief recovery isn't therapy, it is therapeutic. And that can be very insulting. And people will be offended if you say there's something wrong with you. Got to remember, grievers are trying to be strong. They're trying to be big. They're trying not to feel bad because that's what they were taught incorrectly to do. So it's really important that we have a certain sensitivity when trying to help people. Uh, Giving unsolicited advice is always bad because unsolicited advice robs dignity. And it will also isolate people because they don't want someone telling them what to do when they haven't asked for some guidance. Mm. And you mentioned action steps. What are those action steps that people can take to effectively move through and heal from their own grief and loss after someone close to them has passed away, such as a parent or a child or relative or spouse? Yes. The the set of actions, which is defined in our books and our programs is actually very simple. Actually, the hardest part about everything we do, Andrea, is that it's too easy. Everyone wants to complicate it and get in their head and analyze it. And, you know, my job is to move people 14 inches from their head to their heart. I think I mentioned that earlier. And and sometimes that's difficult because people feel safer 
in their head than in their emotions. And that's a, and there's no solution for grief in your head. Your, your head is not your problem. No one has ever come to us with a broken head, but they all come to us with a broken heart. First key, and this is something we have been discussing to a certain degree, the first key is to discover what information you have been using that has not been helpful in dealing with your grief. So then you can replace those false ideas with better ideas. And the beginning of all of our programs is about establishing what ideas are incorrect and what are correct. And there's like six myths, and I'll just run through them very quickly, that limit us all in dealing with grief. The first is the myth of don't feel bad, which we get as kids. We have a dog die and we're told, don't feel bad. On Saturday, we'll get you a new dog. On Saturday, we'll get you a new dog translates to replace the loss, which is impossible. It's like if you get a divorce, they say, don't feel bad. There are plenty of fish in the sea, which is the first time you knew you were married to a fish. Uh, uh, but humor aside, the idea is that relationships are replaceable, but they aren't. Relationships aren't light bulbs. You can't just take one out, put one in and start over. There is an emotional effect or impact of, of the grief of the end of a relationship that must be dealt with, or your fear of getting hurt again will sabotage the next relationship. And let me kind of prove that. If you get divorced, the first divorce rate, marriage divorce rate is 50%. We all know that. The second marriage divorce rate is 64%. And the third marriage divorce rate is 75%. So replace the loss clearly doesn't work. When you get a divorce, it does not make you good at marriage. It makes you good at divorce. So you get another one. And how that happens is if you and I are married and we break up and I feel hurt and you feel hurt, your ability to trust not only men or me, but yourself, okay, is limited. And when that trust is limited, the next relationship you get into, you will bring the fear of getting hurt again. And by with that fear, you will hold back some of your emotional truth, some of your vulnerability, some of your honesty. When you hold it back, you guarantee ending it. You guarantee sabotage because at the same time, I, as your new partner, am holding back because because I was hurt by my last partner. And what we have is what you could call a dance of death. The probability of sustaining a new relationship without having correctly and effectively emotionally completed the prior relationship is very limited because you will bring all those fears and mistrust and all the hurt into the new one and be afraid of having that again and therefore hold back. And the hold back is a killer. You know, I'm sure I don't have to explain. I know you teach on this, so I suspect your awareness of this is as high as ours. The only uh, distinction for us is, is that the grief recovery program helps people complete the unfinished business so they don't drag it through to the next relationship. Uh, our book, Moving On, is dedicated to dealing with the divorces and other romantic breakups so that we don't take the emotional baggage from the last one and, and just slop it over the new one and ruin it. So we have don't feel bad, replace the loss, and probably then the biggest uh, myth about dealing with grief is the idea of grieving alone. And I'm sure if I say to you that grieving people tend to isolate, you would go, yep, I heard that. And it's because we're taught. For example, there's a famous line where we're taught, laugh and the whole world laughs with you, cry and you cry alone, which forces us to isolate our feelings when there's a loss. And we're also told not to burden other people with our feelings. So it's, it's crazy making. So we have don't feel bad, 
replace the loss, grieve alone, and then we have the classic. The classic lie or myth is that time heals all wounds or grief just takes time. Well, I can tell you that time won't fix your broken heart any more than time would fix a flat tire. It takes actions to fix a flat tire, takes actions to deal with your broken heart. The first action is to dismiss all these false ideas. The other one is the idea of being strong or being strong for others. And we give a different choice. You can be strong or you can be human. Pick one. And most people will pick strong, but when they're strong, they're not honest. They don't tell the truth. And then the last myth is the myth of keeping busy distracting yourself with energy of doing stuff. But let's say that you and I have an argument and I go and distract myself and do a bunch of exercise or running or working. Does that do anything to complete or finish the argument you and I had? The answer is obviously no. So I must take action to complete unfinished business. And now, after dealing with these myths and misinformation that we all learned in childhood, the next major action we ask people to do is a real simple thing. It's called a loss history graph in which people write down the, uh, the losses that have affected them, whether they're deaths of important people, romantic breakups or divorces, mistreatment in childhood or anywhere along the way. And here's one that will surprise our listeners. One of the biggest grief events in our life is moving, and especially moving many times as a child. Um, whether you've had this experience or not, or not, a lot of our listeners have, who if they were families were in the military or sometimes clergy or other professions, even corporate, where some people went to eight or 10 or 12 schools in first, second, third grade. And what they learn, sadly, is not to connect with others because the connections get broken and they get torn away. Even in this modern world with Skype and, and FaceTime and everything, to be physically removed from the people we've been close to, especially when we're young and have started to attach to them, is really, really painful. We have we have moving as a major loss, major financial issues are are grief. Uh, I mentioned I went bankrupt. Obviously, that's a big loss. But I don't know if you know this, Andrea, that 90% of the people who win major lotteries around the world wind up losing all the money within three years and wind up needing therapy they never needed before. And here's an interesting thing. The 10% of people who don't lose all the money and don't need therapy, the reason they were wealthy to begin with. If they were wealthy and got more money, it's less difficult of a change for them than if it's, if it's those of us who are middle class or below, if you want to use that phrase. We get all this money. We don't know who we are anymore. Our identity kind of relates to money and position and things like that. Grief is not limited to death or divorce. It's not limited to moving major financial changes in either, either direction. Um, and then Personal habits, uh, for example, sobriety and AA or uh, in Overeaters Anonymous is also a grief issue where you might say, well, isn't it wonderful someone to get sober and improve their life? The answer is yes. But grief is the conflicting feelings caused by a change or an end in a familiar pattern of behavior. Even though sobriety is devoutly to be desired, sometimes it creates a lot of change or grief. And a lot of people go back to drinking or using drugs because they haven't dealt with the underlying grief issues that affect all of us. 
this thing is, uh, yeah, so in grief recovery, we'll help people look at all the losses that have affected their life and all the misinformation they learned about dealing with loss. Then we help them choose one of the major people who has affected their life. That person might be living or dead. It might be a parent. It might be a spouse. It might be anyone. And look at the absolute relationship, the good, the bad, the sweet, the sour, the ugly, the, the fair, everything, and help them determine what is emotionally unfinished for them in that relationship with the person. And it's a very specific, easy, accessible process privately. I can't do my work on you with you because what I perceive about you and the things that how you've affected me as my sister or my wife or whatever will be different than as you perceive them. I can't work directly with my own mate or friends. I must work with people who are working on their own losses who don't really know the people who've affected my life. If you and I are brother and sister and I want to work on our dad Oh, the things I believe. I said, well, dad did this and then he said, and you'll say, no, that wasn't, that wasn't him. That was mom or that wasn't him. That was you. And all of a sudden the freedom and safety to work on the loss won't be there. The major next step, as I said, is to do a relationship graph on a powerfully important person in our lives. And let me stop a moment there and mention this. The if you were going to build a house, would you put the roof on first? And if so, what would hold it up? Obviously, the house has to have a foundation. Well, grief has a foundation. It's usually the prior things that have happened when we're younger. What we bring to our marriages is the things we learned in our childhood growing up, not just about romantic relationships, but about everything. So it's always a good idea to go back and work on old, our longest-term relationships first and move forward rather than the other direction. Then we help people take the things they discover in their relationship with someone and put them in categories and they're so simple. One is apologies, one is forgiveness, and one is significant emotional statements. And in those three categories, we can help anybody deal with what's unfinished for them because those are the only three completion categories anyone ever needs. Now, we explain forgiveness differently than almost anybody. I recommend people get our book, The Grief Recovery Handbook, and read about forgiveness because we have a very unique and helpful way of addressing that difficult issue for many people. And then significant emotional statement just means something that's really important to you that is not an apology or forgiveness. So it's this blanket three categories help everything. Then we take the information that we have converted into those categories those completion categories, and we put them in a document. We call it a grief recovery method completion letter to help you put them in categories that you can be complete. As long as I hold a resentment against you and don't forgive you, I am going to stay in unresolved grief. I can't do anything until I complete my resentment of you. If I keep holding on to that, then you control me. And if you have died, it's called being ruled from the grave. So we need to forgive. We need to apologize for things that we may have done or said to other people. And we need to forgive them and we need to thank them. And this whole process is very doable. It's very accessible. It's not magical. It's not analytical. And the, the, the wind up is to help us feel emotionally complete with someone. Now, that doesn't mean feeling complete doesn't mean we never have sadness or miss people. It's normal to miss someone who isn't here anymore, whether it's they're, they've died or 
we're divorced or strange. But what we need to do is feel complete so we don't walk around wearing our grief on our shoulder like a chip and being afraid to get connected with people. Uh, the benefit of grief recovery method is to allow us to reconnect to ourselves, to our heart and soul, and then to reconnect with others. Mm, right. And then are, are there any additional resources you'd like to provide to our listeners? Well, certainly. I think I mentioned earlier the uh, www.griefrecoverymethod.com, our website, and there are like hundreds of articles we've written that can be accessed and printed. You can learn a lot just reading the articles. Our books, all of our books are available there or on Amazon or Barnes & Noble. Uh, those are the primary things. We also have a resource on um, tributes.com, which is one of those memorial websites. And on there, the, the there are hundreds of questions I've answered for grieving people in the trenches. Like many of our listeners might be recently bereaved of something. And if they read the questions and answers that I've dealt with there, they may learn some things in the privacy of their own home that will help them and then hopefully provoke them to go find some recovery. Mm, great. Well, thank you so much, Russell, for being on today's show. It's been wonderful having you. Thank you so much, Andrew. Well, there you have it. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode as much as I did. If you would like to access these show notes and links mentioned on today's show, please visit truepotentialcounseling.com for details. We have some exciting things coming up here at True Potential Counseling. Join us for my free three-part video series so you too can create a relationship and life you love by visiting createarelationshipyoulove.com to learn about the common mistakes many couples make and what you should do instead, how to improve the emotional and physical intimacy in your relationship, and how to get unstuck and improve communication in 10 minutes or less. Thank you so much, and we will catch you next time on Relationship Lovecast. Thanks for listening to Lovecast by True Potential at www.truepotentialcounseling.com. 